Hi, and welcome to Zero Ambitions, the podcast that has high ambitions to push for zero emissions in the built environment. I'm Duncan Smith and the other guy is Jeff Coley, and together we try and bring you a weekly discussion on a topic that's relevant to the housing or construction industry. One that's insightful and in-depth that links climate change with the built environment, but also a message that's hopefully optimistic too. Today we're bringing you an interview that we had with Professor of Economics at Manchester Metropolitan University, Kevin Albertson. With the recent gas crisis and Ofgem increasing the cap on energy prices, we thought this would be a great time to talk with Kevin on the UK's energy market and where things are going. And I think Kevin's ideas will strike a chord with many of you. It's a really interesting discussion that includes both the economics of energy as well as retrofit skills and training across the UK. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Thanks. Privatisation, Mrs. Thatcher once said, was a great British export. Um, that wasn't really a great British export because Britain did a lot more of it than other countries. But uh, ironically, it did involve British exports because the ownership of our productive assets passed often into the hands of overseas businesses, sometimes even overseas governments. So sometimes what seemed to be privatisation was actually ownership by a different um, national government. <laughs> But the, the idea behind the, the free market reforms, if you can believe the what we were told at the time, we, we could all speculate what their motives were there, but let's take Mrs. Thatcher at her word. The idea was it was felt that it would lead to efficiencies and leave the consumer better off. There's some justification for that in the sense that there's always going to be a temptation for government ministers to put one of their friends in charge of particular government industries, and they might they might not run it efficiently. There was certainly some evidence they weren't being run efficiently. However, in order to get them ready for privatisation, they were made more efficient, and by the time they were privatised, they were actually as efficient, if not more so, than private sector um, operators. But in general, in the European mainland, um, there has been a greater role for the government to be involved directly in markets, right across the board, for example, railways, as well as utilities. And actually, I think in Scotland, I'm right in saying, is it not the case that Scottish water is still owned by the government, whereas yeah. it was privatised um, in England? Yep. Now, the idea was that competition would provide the efficiencies that would reduce prices for the consumer. And to some extent, that's right. To some extent, it's not. So a typical dual fuel bill in the UK at the moment, around about 34.63% of that, I say around about, let's call it 35%. I mean, that comes from wholesale prices. Mm. When anything is bought and sold on world markets, then Britain is effectively a, a price taker. Some would have argued that when North Sea oil and gas was beginning to be utilised, really it probably shouldn't have been exported. The government could have decided to keep that relatively cheaper energy for British industry, and that would have given British industry a competitive advantage on world stages. Rather ironically, by that I mean it would have been better to export, and it would have been safeguarding jobs. Rather ironically, if you export Britain's oil and gas, what happens is the exchange rate appreciates, which means that the more oil and gas you export, then it becomes tougher to export other stuff, which means mm -hmm. that you can actually, it's, it's, they call it the Dutch disease, 
the Dutch were the first people to formalise this and do something about it, I understand. Norway, of course, does a lot of this. You have to offset the impact on the exchange rate of exporting oil and gas if you don't want your manufacturing to suffer. So we could have used that oil and gas effectively to, to safeguard British manufacturing, but we use it effectively to compete against British manufacturing. And still, that, that boat has sailed. In Norway, they had a similar problem, and they decided to use the excess funds to set up what's called a sovereign wealth fund, so to sterilise the impact of the exchange rate. But at any rate, the, um, the wholesale costs of gas make up a very large segment, more than a third of all of our bills, whereas the operating surplus of the supplies make up a relatively small percent of our bills. So we're really only talking about changes around the um, margin. So the competition is not ever going to be able to offset a very large increase in the wholesale price mm. of energy around the world. And I don't think anybody would ever expect it to. So we're only ever talking about marginal difference. No, that's, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, so, I mean, I suppose um, the the margins are small and, and the cost of buying it is, is significant, you know, cost of buying energy if we're talking about particularly natural gas here. So you're saying that I think it's said 30, 30, 30% uh, and, and, and the operate or the the costs and, and or the profit is, 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 is marginal. And that's, that's quite unusual, isn't it, for a, for a sector in terms of, uh, of, of, of that kind of model? Well, of course, it's not a free market because, as mm. I'm sure you know, there is a um, cap on prices. Yeah. And it rather indicates that the government never really thought that the, the free market was going to deliver efficiencies because why else would you need a cap on prices? Yeah. That actually takes us back to the question you asked earlier, what can the government do? They can, they can obviously regulate, but the other option is not to nationalise an entire industry, but to nationalise or to have their own supplier. Actually, if, if private sector suppliers are going under, that could be an opportunity for the government simply to buy them. <laughs> if the government were to set out to buy um, a water company or a big gas company, it would cost the taxpayer a fortune. <laughs> and there's no guarantee a subsequent government might not sell that off again, so the taxpayer might not get their money back. But if a business is going... If, well, if some financial difficulties and needs to be, perhaps you could call it bailing out, it could be bought out. And once the public sector has a stake in the game, they can then sell on the retail market at whatever price they feel is appropriate. And the laws of competition will mean, of course, that the other providers, the private sector providers, will have to innovate in order to compete. Mm. There's no reason why the private sector shouldn't have to compete against the public sector. People often don't think that it does, but only because perhaps they're not familiar with the areas where it does. So I know that you're familiar with the NHS. The NHS, because of its existence, it actually keeps private health insurance premiums lower in the UK because nobody's going to go private unless it is at least as good as the NHS. Mm. And the same thing uh, with, for example, the BBC. The presence of the BBC means that private sector broadcasters have to be at least as good as the BBC. You don't need a regulation to make that the case. That's just the way the market works. So one thing the government could do to intervene directly in the market wouldn't be to nationalise the whole industry, but just to have publicly owned providers. And then they could be relatively sure that mm. the public would change to those cheaper providers if it, if it were going to benefit them. And that's what I'm interested in because I think... It's very interesting you say... 
Sorry, on you go, Jeff. No, I was just going to say, it's very interesting that you say that, Kevin, because that um, sounds a little bit like the model in Ireland. I don't know how much you know about the energy market in Ireland, if at all. Um, but um, we we have uh, we had formerly two uh, sort of state-owned monopoly suppliers, uh, uh, Board Gosh for gas and uh, the ESB, the Electric Supply Board for electricity. And the market's being sort of deregulated, so you now have lots of you know different competitors. Um, but there's those both of those companies are still within state ownership, and they're they're competing. So that problem that sounds a little bit like what I guess what you're proposing, really. Um, yes, I didn't know they did that in Ireland. So that is is obviously a very sensible way forward. And actually, if I can bring it back to near even our own interests, say housing, mm. if there is a concern that private sector landlords are charging. Uh, in such a way as to make what economists would call abnormal profits. The obvious thing to do is for the public sector to say, well, we can build and rent houses much more cheaply. Now, you'd have to have some safeguards in place to prevent central government effectively appropriating those houses and selling them off at below cost and then taking the proceeds. How you do that would be up to a lawyer or an accountant, I suppose, but the whole idea of intervening directly in the market. So my understanding, for example, of the council housing of the 1950s and 60s was the council houses were generally a higher spec specification than you would have got from private builders. And that forced the private builders to begin to include innovations, which actually improved the housing sector overall. The other thing about council housing, of course, is if the public can retain control of it, and we often think that council housing is owned by government. It isn't owned by government in a democratic country. It's owned by us. You know, we are the government. So uh, the public if they own their own housing, administered through government, of course, then that can create efficiencies in the sense that they won't necessarily be sold off simply for investment goods and, and mm. kept you know, perhaps vacant. There's a, as I'm sure you know, there's um, tens of thousands of houses in the UK which are vacant, having perhaps been purchased for investment goods. I would like to speculate on the motives of their owners, but certainly yeah. at least some of those one might think could be used to house people. After all, you know, they are houses. And so the government could intervene directly in the housing market and they could build these these passive houses to which you refer, by which I take it you mean that they are carbon neutral. No, it's a specific standard that involves making buildings so energy efficient that you that you effectively do away with the need for for space heating or or as, or as good as you know um, yeah. and it's got a specific uh, it's an evidence-based voluntary standard that was developed in germany uh, in the in the 90s and you know so there is examples in in uh, even in the uk there is uh, for instance there's a in my tedx presentation re- refer to a, a, a sheltered housing scheme in in exeter where uh five years after they were moved in uh, the elderly residents of the scheme hadn't turned the heating on, literally. You know, this, mm. the small kind of battery heaters that were added to the ventilation system. It's and that's kind of absurd when you consider it's elderly people and the higher temperatures they tend to need. Um, you know, and and the lifelong habits for you know for, around heating that would have formed as well. I think what we are, um, I think Jeff would agree with this. So what we are, so we all accept the fact that we have to decarbonize uh, our homes and decarbonize heating, even if we can't get to passive house standards. Um, there's a passive house equivalent for retrofit, which is called Enerfit. Um, within a social housing uh, setting, 
Um, there's significant health issues as a result uh, and social and societal issues that come along with that because people can't afford to heat their homes. And it's interesting you describing the market in the way you have um, uh, so well because you know pe- people are faced, especially in Scotland, with um, with lower temperatures here. Um, I think the, I've got some figures I can I can show from one of the, um, the locals of charities which show that the estimation that people spend between seventeen hundred and £2,200 on heating their, their, their socially rented home in Scotland. Now, that's a huge amount of money for anyone, but it's it's an even greater amount of money for somebody who's on lower fixed incomes. And I, I think the concern for us, and that's, and that's primarily, Kevin, through using gas. So I think the figure in Scotland is about 78% of homes use gas. Uh, and I think in the UK overall, it's 80. So, so gas is still relatively cheap, per kilowatt hour, it's about 3, 4p, um, whereas electricity is significantly higher. And, and the concern that we have, just in terms of you describing the sort of macroeconomic uh, sort of picture, the bigger strategic picture is, yes, we accept we have to electrify heat. Um, it's the only really sensible way to, 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 to decarbonise or to, to, to move towards a net zero sort of society. But the price of electricity is significantly higher than gas. So if we don't address the fundamentals in the demand side, then we really do risk significant issues with with affordability and sustainability, and and if something as a price point just now is is twenty two hundred pounds isn't sustainable, it's certainly not sustainable at you know three thousand pounds or four thousand pounds. So for us, it's about how we try and reduce that demand. But I think regardless of re- reducing the demand, we'll always have the demand for some heat residual heat, um, higher heat in, in, in buildings that we can't take to those levels, and also hot water, um, as well as um, our transportation. You know, we'll be looking at uh, electrifying transport. So what I'm interested in is is, is how uh, perhaps what lessons we can learn from other parts of the country or, or, or Europe where we provide we, we provide either de- you know a, a, a better model for the provision of, of electricity, which is what we're really talking about in the next 10 years. Um, and that's that's what I'm interested in. Jeff, well, what? if I um, can go back, if you'll forgive me, um, as long as we're generating some electricity from gas, it really makes no sense to try to encourage people to move away from gas because if you change gas into electricity, you actually lose energy. Hmm. The carbon footprint of heating a house from electricity which has been generated from gas is actually greater than the carbon footprint of heating a house just from gas. So surely our primary concern should be to do away with gas and coal and in general fossil fuel electric generation before we start complaining. I'm not complaining, I do apologize. Before we start campaigning <laughs> to get people to move from gas to electricity. It, it will make things worse if we don't in the short run. There are other um, options, of course. I mean, we, we could vary the, the taxes. You remember I said how you could consider it socially inefficient for a utility as a necessary good to be charged the same per kilowatt hour as a normal good, as a luxury good. Now, we're all perhaps used to these smart meters and so on. Um, Well, at least I have one. I tend not to look at it all that much. (laughs) If I want a cup of tea, I make a cup of tea, you know. But uh, we're used to the idea that electricity doesn't always cost the same. Gas doesn't always cost the same. For electricity. So we could have a variable rate of VAT. So 
every household could have a certain allocation of VAT, there's a lot of electricity where the VAT is effectively zero or even negative. There's mm. no reason why you couldn't have a negative 100% rate of VAT, thus making electricity effectively free up to a certain minimum level. Mm-hmm. Beyond that, you could have, I'm not saying that we ever would adopt such a scheme, but we could have zero rated VAT up to a certain minimum level. Above that, you could have a higher rate of VAT, and then by the time you get to the point where a household is using an exorbitant amount of electricity, VAT could be quite high. Now, this mm-hmm. would be quite useful as a model for the simple reason that people can't sell on these effectively subsidised goods if we were to subsidise electricity. You, I mean, you could charge somebody's batteries for them, I suppose, but that's about as far as it gets. So if you, mm. Supposing you provide a free bread to people, you know, they, they could potentially sell it on to somebody else. They probably wouldn't, but, you know, this is always the argument that they might. But nobody's going to be able to sort of um, sell on their uh, lower-priced yeah. gas, electricity, and water to their next-door neighbour. Now, the environmental and obligation, social obligation cost of electricity is, is around about, I think it's about 15% on a dual fuel bill at the moment. You can see that's, that's quite high. Mm. Uh, and on top of that, VAT is, is around about 5%. So I'm not convinced there's really a justification for charging VAT mm. on utilities when, they, as I say, they can be a necessary good. In the same way that we don't charge VAT on food that you buy from a supermarket, you might have to mm. pay VAT if you buy it from a restaurant, but yeah. There's no reason why we should have the same rate of VAT right across the board. So I think we had to get innovative. Yeah. The other thing, of course, is that the government in an ideal world can think longer term than private citizens. The government can borrow at a very low rate of interest. If I wanted to retrofit my home out to be very energy efficient, let's just suppose I was doing it at a free market rate, I might be paying 7 8%. I could add it to the mortgage, which is still be about 2%. The government can do it at a much lower rate of interest. And so there's going to be less of that sort of thing done if we rely on the private sector mm. than if the government steps up and does it. Mm. That that's a really interesting point, and 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 because there's a conversation I've been having with Jeff about so the so this this takes us slightly away from from energy, but it's, it's it's certainly of interest to me because my concern is that. Uh, had a really interesting presentation um, where Sarah Lewis, who's the director of policy at um, Pacific House Trust, uh, and she was saying, "Look, we're going to have to retrofit 28 million homes." And I think my concern is if we allow the market to do that, even even with things like building standards and 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 and, uh, and checks and balances, there's a real risk that that won't be effective or as 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 right as we want. And I think that there has to be some control. And I actually think control around not just standards, but the delivery of that work, because we're looking at a scale of retrofit that, and actually I spoke to Scott McCauley this morning, he was talking about the work that we have to do around the built environment being being the same scale as setting up the NHS. And um, I thought that was actually quite, I thought it was quite um, a good way to put it, but quite frightening as well. But we have to start to look at, right, okay, the level of requirement here is significant, but what's the models to actually deliver that? And deliver that to, to you know, for you, Kevin, um, or you know, or for somebody who is not expert in, in home renovations, which most of us are, uh, how do you put models in place that maximises the best of the private sector and the efficiencies that they can bring, but also the checks and balances that perhaps exist in public and uh, the public um, uh, service, um, and get those economies of scale that that gives you a price that's that's um, that's achievable. That's really interesting. 
Well, the other advantage if the um, public sector went into it would be there's a concept, I'm sure you both have come across it, which you probably know it may be under a different name, maintenance overhang, um, which is essentially where people can't afford to maintain their homes properly. And there's a, a sizable maintenance overhang in the UK. I don't know if it's ever really been estimated, but it must be you know, billions of pounds of maintenance that really should be done that people don't have the cash for. One of the things actually about the coronavirus lockdowns is that people stayed home a lot more and they noticed the maintenance on their houses and they were taking fewer holidays as well perhaps for all i know certainly i was and so they began to think you know that roof really needs replacing if you're in a situation like that i'm sure you will have noticed that it's difficult to get hold of tradespeople. there's um quite a a backlog of jobs that people have decided needed to be done and if the public sector were to take on putting some of these things in place, they could combine it with an apprenticeship scheme that would help people to become trades folk. There is a shortage of trades folk in the UK mm. compared to many other nations. Germany, for example, has far more vocational um, educational programs than the UK does. And you know, with the best will in the world, not everybody wants to become an academic, which is fine as well. And we do need to have people who, who can have these skills. Now, one of the drawbacks with apprenticeships, many of the drawbacks from the market come from costs not being internalized or benefits not being internalized, as they say. If you take on, supposing you're a tradesperson, you take on an apprentice and maybe they'll even slow you down at first so it's costing you something. But when they're trained, they could actually go and become a competitor of yours. I mean, what is the the incentive, or at least they yeah. could work for a different company. If the government were to undertake a lot of this work, they could combine it with an educational program, which could train up a whole bunch of new mm. apprentices. And so we would wind up with better insulated and built homes, and also with more builders and insulation specialists and roofers, tiles, plumbers, you name it, that would maintain our housing stock at a more effective rate than we currently have. So mm. the government can afford to combine together several areas. It's the cheaper finance they can get, the ability to do it at a socially optimal level, and also perhaps to iterate towards a more socially optimal training program that itself mm. steps outside the market. It's not to say that people might not still become trained in other ways, but it's all about taking a look at a bigger picture. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's really interesting, and and I actually wonder, Kevin, if there's there's potential for you to come on another pod. We're 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 talking to, sorry, um, we can't pay you, but um, Construction Scotland Innovation are looking at a training program just now, given the given the scale of the task for retrofit, and and what you're talking about there is really interesting because that's about actively. I think far too often Jeff agrees that far too often we're told of the negative or the negative narrative around retrofit and and the the um, the move to decarbonising your homes. But I think what you're talking about is an opportunity here. There's actually a really big strategic opportunity to intervene with a really positive outcome from an employment perspective. And this this brings to actually a point that I wanted to to, to pick up on, um, and I'd be really interested in your perspective on this, Kevin. Um, many years ago. During the the depths of the last recession, um, when in Ireland we were seeing construction companies, the big overexposed house builders uh, going bust um, and going bust, owing money all over town, causing you know suppliers that I was I was ringing up suppliers that uh, that uh, I was trying to sell advertising to in my magazine, and 
they were saying, sorry, can't do anything. You know, uh, I've, I've not been paid for, you know, 500 mm-hmm. boilers that I supplied into whatever sort of housing scheme, you know, so you, and you had this chain effect of, uh, of uh, a knock-on of, of suppliers and the suppliers who supplied into them going bust because of, because of, because of this situation. And we could see this happening. And I was talking, there was an economist who used to write for us, uh, kind of radical. He died a few years ago, a really great guy. Um, and I, um, I asked him, uh, to do kind of a back of a fag box, uh, calculation for us on turning this on its head, how the kind of the virtuous circles that you could get, if you, if you, uh, mobilized retrofit on scale and you looked at, um, you know, the, the ability to create direct, indirect, and induced employment uh, arising from this, what would the benefits be? We look at what would all the different benefits be in terms of as well, putting more money into the pockets of the people who who uh, who are living in these homes, you know, mm-hmm. and the fact that research I, I gather shows that when you, you know, money uh, going to low-income earners tends to give more benefit to an economy because they spend it more in the local economy and all this kind of stuff. And I got talking to um, our central statistics office in Ireland to ask them uh, about this. And they referred me to the Scottish government's input output team, the macroeconomic modelers. And I, I put forward this hypothesis to me, and I was completely stunned by this, um, that uh, the assumption that we were making about developers going bust and having a negative uh, you know, chain reaction effectively. Mm-hmm. Their models didn't address that. They mm-hmm. their assumption was steady state. Basically, that if one company went bust, um, demand would still stay constant, and that another uh, supplier would come in and fill the gap. And I just, I have to say, it was a for me, and maybe mm-hmm. I, maybe I was just unlucky to, to get bad advice, but it it, it was a jaw dropping moment for me that made me think. Well, you know, mm-hmm. uh, if that's the kind of economic. Uh, assumptions that were, you know, models that we're, we're operating off. Yeah. You know, what, what hope, what hope have we got? It, yeah. it, 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 does that sound uh, familiar to you, Kevin? Yes. Um, <laughs> there is very little consideration of the big picture in economics and finance. And you mentioned the last recession, you mean the, the 2008 financial crisis oh yeah the big that one. was yeah. caused yes by the whole idea that the housing market would never drop in value as a whole yeah. but of course we now know that that is um a possibility and i know we well do you mind if i if i run some numbers past you a little bit the, there's okay. a thing called the energy cost of energy i don't know if you've come across it but it, it, it so how much energy you got to put in to get energy out See, we often think of these things in terms of money, but we know the government can always print or borrow more money. The energy cost of energy is the really important thing in terms of generation, obviously. Now, the um, historic energy cost of energy um, in the UK has been around about 2%. So you put in maybe two kilowatts for every 100 kilowatts you get out. But the long-term trend in the energy cost of energy, uh, it's, it's unlikely to get below 10% again, it is going up. The more energy you had to put in just to get energy out, the less energy there is for everything, making the stuff we want, keeping ourselves warm. Those costs are not going to come down and they cannot or very unlikely to come down, particularly if you want to decarbonize. Okay, we could come up with fusion tomorrow, but let's not bet a family farm on it. <laughs> the, the only trend, Barring a technological breakthrough, is that we have to become 
more energy efficient. It is not an option. Hmm. If we don't do it, 10 years from now, we're going to regret it. And not just in ecological terms. We're going to regret it in terms of economic terms and sociological terms as well. So we don't have any options. Hmm. It's not about whether we should become more energy inefficient. It is the best way of doing it. Yeah. That, that's a really interesting point, Kevin. And I presume by energy cost of energy, this is essentially the same thing as energy return on energy invested. invested. It's the same, same concept, effectively. The, the, the amount of, you know... Uh, of energy at source that has to go into the production of the, the final energy product. And um, I, I'm reminded back at around about 2010, uh, I attended a, a press conference in Dublin that Dr. Fatih Birol, the chief economist with the International Energy Agency, was presenting on, the, on, the, on that year's World Energy Outlook report. And Richard Douthwaite uh, uh, briefed me for, for, uh, going into it. So I asked in a room full of journalists um, whether the projections they had for you know future energy reserves and so on took account of energy return on energy invested. In other words, whether they were gross or net figures. And he said they didn't. <laughs> He's very open about it. And I said, well, what can we assume then? Can we assume that there is perhaps 10 or 20% uh, launched the World Energy Outlook report for, I think, 2010? Um, and I asked uh, Dr. Fatih Birol, their, their chief economist, whether their projections for future energy supply in, uh, included uh, energy return on energy invested or whether whether they were gross figures or net figures. And he said that they didn't. Um, and I was stunned by, the, by this revelation. And I was also stunned, I have to say, by how candid he was and how willing to share this kind of information. Um, and I asked him whether he whether that meant that there was, you know, could we assume that there was 10 or 20% less energy available uh, mm -hmm. than their figures uh, indicated? And he said, and I'm paraphrasing here, you can assume what you like. <laughs> so it was just an extraordinary moment for me again. And uh, it's one of these many moments you have, I think, um, uh, when you've, you know, when, when you, as a grown up now and, uh, you know, uh, fumbling about in the world where you think back to the fact when you were a kid and you saw these parents and teachers and authority figures, um, and you thought that there were grown ups running the world mm. and then you grow up and then you realize actually, no, <laughs> it feels like <laughs> chaos. And not to, not to, I have to say, Dr. Birrell was very impressive and, um, and, uh, you know, uh, uh, I think he's, he's been doing very important work. Um, but it, it was a, it was a very strange, uh, and significant moment for me. Um, so there's no question <laughs> really arising from that, but you basically your figures anyway, Kevin, you're, you're, um, when you talk about energy, um, in these terms, uh, you're talking about energy return on energy invested, uh, invested and thinking about that across, uh, you know, entire, uh, on a global scale across all industries. Essentially. Yes. Um, and you only need to kind of think about the, the world market to see that the, the cost of energy must be increasing because why on earth would we frack? If there's a lot of cheap gas out there, we wouldn't frack. Why would we have had a problem with deep water horizon if there was a lot of easily accessible fossil fuels available? That I'm not saying we're scraping the bottom of the barrel exactly. And I guess you know that really, even if we had a lot of cheap fossil fuels available, we probably ought not to use them mm. because we are creating an ecological deficit we probably don't want to live with. But even on top of that, as I say, the increasing energy cost of energy means that we're going to have to find a different way of doing things. And nobody really likes, I don't think, 
anyone who says, look, I'm sorry, you just can't do that. We, we don't like anybody to point out limits. It's not that economists are trying to put limits on people unnecessarily. We're just trying to say, well, you probably can't go on like this. As it is, a lot of the economic activity in the world is essentially involving. Um, it's only profitable because a lot of the costs are passed on to other people through maybe pollution, congestion, ecological deficits mounting up in the future and so on. And then many of these things are not adequately taken account of. Hmm. You'll probably remember I mentioned the, um, the sort of green levy, which the government puts on energy costs. And you could say, well, they should be there really because we are impacting on the environment. So I, I don't want to imply that we probably shouldn't do things like that, but it does have an effect on mm. people who are economically marginal, and it's not clear that it's the economically marginal should have to pay the cost of lifestyle choices which are taken by our society as a whole. It's not clear to me anyway. Yeah. That's a, I think that's a really good point. Them. Yeah, no, it's a really good point, especially when we've been talking about um, the the um, – the environmental costs that are embedded within the electricity price and, and the move to electrify heat in particular, I think could be wrong. The figures about 20, 25% of, of your average um, um, electricity unit cost is made up of, of levies. Um, so, yeah, that's an interesting point. Sorry, Jeff, I interrupted you. No, I was just thinking that um, uh, one of the, the, the issues that, that, that occurs to me on the on the back of what you're saying kevin is um uh we tend to think about climate action and so on in the context of of cuts and sacrifices and and that's i suppose unavoidable to a large extent but i think and i'm coming at this perhaps from a communications and even a marketing perspective which is unusual i suppose um um there are ways that we can take action on climate that that, that actually improve our lives. And, you know, rather than just asking the question uh, or, or, or pointing out that we can't continue to go on like this, um, I think it's also worth po positing the question, uh, what benefits are we getting from the way we're currently living? You know, um, so for instance, um, I, by way, it's a small little example, but I'm renting uh, an apartment. It's a low energy apartment. It's not quite passive house, but it's not that far away from it in Dunleary in the south of, of uh, a suburb to the south of Dublin. Um, but this particular development was built in such a way that um, although there's lot, there's an underground car park, I, I don't drive myself, but there's, there's an underground car park and a lot of people do, it's designed in such a way that, uh, that uh, there's permeability so you can walk to the town. It's kind of almost quicker to walk to the town uh, mm -hmm. than it is to drive there. You know, um, uh, th there's a lot of amenity built within to, uh, within to the development from a biodiversity perspective and so on, and the, the energy and so on. It's uh, and the, the, the standard of living. Like I have this this phenomenon uh, here. I had it this morning, for instance, when the, when the temperatures are starting to get colder. You know, you don't know whether you're properly dressed for the weather until you're at the door. Mm. You know, um, the, the point is that this is a. There are some things that this development doesn't do right. Overheating is a bit of a problem, for instance. Um, that's an issue that you can run into with low energy buildings. And the embodied carbon the, that went into the, the manufacture of the buildings, for instance, wasn't, wasn't considered. But there's some things, because the developer was, a, I think, a good developer who's concerned, a rare kind of beast, a good developer who's concerned about the, his name and, and, and the, you know, and wants people selling the houses in, in, in this development in, in you know, 10 years' time or whatever to be advertising them 
as a, a as a Cosgrave house, the development that, he, that he's working with. And it, my point is that this has become an aspirational. I hate that word, but it's become an aspirational uh, place to live. Um, and uh, I think it's really important to have schemes like that um, that uh, that show people that uh, that taking climate action can actually improve your life. Um, uh, you know, that's not to say that there at the same time there aren't hard decisions. Uh, but to bring this background into your sphere, uh, uh, it, you know, it comes down to things like co-benefits, I suppose, um, and how you how you uh, monetize them. I'd be fascinated to, to, to know whether you have thoughts on. On uh, on uh, how to 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 quantify some of these other benefits, uh, whether it's comfort, uh, whether it's uh, health benefits, um, you know, uh, whether it's just the mental health benefits of not having to spend a couple of hours every or more every day stuck in traffic. You know, um, is this something that 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 that, that you thought of, or you know, that there are economic um, solutions to? Well, there are there are always economic solutions. <laughs> Um, but uh, the, the question is, what is the problem that we're trying to address? And often we approach an economic problem such as, for example, trying to decarbonize. But we approach it in such a way as to consider how this can be done to, I don't know, maximize GDP just for the sake of pulling a completely pointless number out of thin air. Do you know what I mean? Mm. And so it is a question of framing the problem in the right way, in my opinion. Now, I'm sure that you're familiar with the idea that Paris wants to move to becoming, I think they call it a 15-minute city. My French is no good, but you know that's a near enough translation. So they want people to be able to, to live, to work, to shop, to, to do everything they want within about a 15-minute walk of where they live. And this will have benefits that we can not capture with, for example, GDP. Just consider um, the value that I'm sure you, you get from your relationships, your family. In general, they are not captured at all by GDP. Mm. So supposing we have a future where we don't go out necessarily to, to buy a cup of coffee so much, but we have more time walking in the hills with our friends, is that really a worse future you know, yeah. than the future we currently have? And because we don't tend to value these relationships, in a way it seems it doesn't seem right to try to put a cost on them. But one way we could do it, I'm sure you have come across the idea that it's always presented, in my opinion, the wrong way around. We talk about how young graduates when they leave university, sometimes they are held back by their family. They don't move down to London or wherever that they did their degree. You could just as easily argue that the value they put on their family is the fact that if they stay, say, in Yorkshire, they may earn less than in London. So they must value their family at least as highly as that. Do you see what I mean? So instead of saying that this is a cost the family is imposing on people, what we're actually saying is, no, it's not the cost of the family. That's the value of the family. It all depends on which way you look at it. However, the drawback we have is we move to a, a an attempt to reduce our economic kind of um, ecological footprint. We're going to have to make things that last a lot longer. And so there's going to be probably less things that are made. We haven't yet, as a society, globally, I think, come to terms with the point that probably we ought to be having a bit more leisure instead of running around all the time desperately trying to, to fit it all together. You may know that the Gallup organisation, before the latest kind of slowdown because of the coronavirus, they estimated there were really only enough good jobs in the world for one third of the world's adult population. Now, 
unemployment is quite often blamed on the people who haven't had the luck to to get jobs. But if you take the UK as an example, if you go back to say the 1970s, was generally regarded as an era of full employment, and it certainly was if you were male. Employment was around about 92%, 93%. If you were female, not quite so good, although you know social expectations were different then, but even so, um, the employment rate was around 50%. And you know that was an untenable situation, obviously, and it has changed. However, if you consider that the average between 50% and 92% is around about 75% employment. So that is what the employment rate was in the UK in the 1970s, approximately 75%. Fast forward four decades, some spectacularly incompetent prime ministers, well, just one, but let's not go into that, managed to get employment down as low as 68%. But generally speaking, 75% is what we've maintained for four decades. Now, if we cannot boost employment above 75%, because so much effort into doing it, and a lot of the jobs that we do, what David Graeber, well, he called them BS jobs, but um, he meant jobs that we would we don't actually need, if you see what I mean. Yeah. There may be fewer of those in the future. Short of it is that we, we've reached a situation in our economic development where we need to consider leisure a lot more seriously yeah. and to reduce the amount of time we put into production and consumption mm. that ultimately may well have negative consequences. Mm. I, th- I think that's really interesting. I, I, you know, I've been reading, I like Kate Rollworth's Donut Economics, and I think it's, I know that Amsterdam are, are, are adopting some of the, the principles within that. And um, I should I should actually say, I think the Scottish government have, in, in their uh, route map for housing, I think they have a 20-minute scheme of, of neighborhoods uh, which i think is 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 really commendable um but i agree i think i think we measure things and the metric that we use for measurement just now is certainly doesn't take into account many of the the, the benefits as a society that we that we want um it's a it's a difficult one but i, I think what you're suggesting what, what i think you're saying is that that argument i don't see that argument being had political cautious we're steering off into politics now, but I think you're right. I think that argument hasn't been had in any of the devolved governments. I don't think it is anyway, about the strategic economic landscape of what we're going to do over the next 10 years. This, this has been great. I'm conscious we've taken up nearly an hour of your time. Yeah. Could, could, I, could, I just, could I just ask you to, to end off and, 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 and in terms of, you know, this the 1st of October today, the price um, cap has been has been raised just back to the kind of core core. Uh, core point of this this podcast was, you know, I think the figure is £153 more on the average standard tariff. Um, you know, we'll, we're already seeing um, in, in the UK in particular with the benefit, um, with uh, some of the benefit cuts, um, significant reduction in, 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 in spending that, that uh, many uh, households will have. There seems to be a perfect storm going on here. From what I've read, I, I, I read an article in The Economist just during the week about um, gas prices unlikely that we'll see them going down, given the this uh, global uh, demand, South America and, and Asia and so on, and production slightly reduced. Where, where are we going? Where where are we heading? Because I think you made the point earlier on. There's no point producing electricity with fossil fuels. Where are we heading in terms of the the, the, the coming years? Um, should we should we see a, a, an increase and in, 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 indeed a reduction in, in gas? How do you think things will, will work in the in the coming years? And, and again. 
how many companies will be around and, and what impact will that have in terms of the, the choice of limited choice? Well, over time, all industries tend to consolidate unless there's government interventions who prevent it. So consider the number of car companies which remain. And mm. many of what we think of car companies, for example, Audi, are actually owned by you know, Volkswagen Audi Group, for example. Yeah. So it is a natural part of the economy in a free market. You should think about a game of monopoly, actually. That's a good metaphor. Over a period of time, the people who have the resources will accumulate more and more resources. So in a mature market, unless the government's continually intervening to create competition, there will be fewer and fewer providers. And as firms gain market power, then they get into, I'm not saying they will, but they face the temptation of using that market power to benefit themselves in a way that perhaps we might not like. One of the reasons, of course, where we have off-jam and things like that. In the longer run, though, We've known for a very long period of time that it is not possible for everybody in the world to enjoy the kind of standard of living that we enjoy in the West. And yet there are many nations in the world who are out there increasing their standard of living. And that's a legitimate aspiration. This is going to create tensions. How they're going to be resolved is going to be a political matter. However, I, I can only return to to my earlier points, really, we we have had a period of very, very cheap fossil fuels, where in the unfortunate situation of having built an economic and social model that depends on those cheap fossil fuels, thinking that they would last forever, but they will not. If not this time, then at some stage in the next 10 years, we are going to have to move to an economy where we are reducing our reliance on energy. It doesn't mean that we'll necessarily be worse off, but it does mean that we need to consider different priorities. Now you ask me, where do I think we are going? The answer is where we want to go. The only thing is, I don't think our political leadership has worked out where we want to go yet. If they can determine a vision for the future and begin to put policies in place now that will move us towards it, then we will get there. Mm. But if we just, most likely, if we just leave it to the market, muddling along, hoping for the best, where are we going to be in 10 years? Well, kind of like where we are today, but with more expensive energy. And to be honest, that's not a place that I'm particularly wanting to move into. I think that's a great, a really great summary and a great way to end. Kevin, thank you so much for your time. 